Let's begin with prayer. Father God, thank you for your amazing grace, for your love that never fails, for the fact that you are here with us. Walk with us this day, Lord. Guide us and direct us. Teach us your word. Help us to live as you've called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the 2001 uh, movie came out called To End All Wars. It's a true story of a Scottish prisoners of war in a Japanese prison camp during World War II. And a group of the prisoners began, while they were there in this camp, they were studying uh, philosophy, Shakespeare, and the Bible just to maintain their sanity. Of course, they were in a horrible place. Soon their Christian behavior began to influence many of the other prisoners. It also amazed their captors. Well, one of the scenes, a group of seriously injured Japanese soldiers are arriving by truck to the prison camp. They had been bombed by Allied planes. They had abandoned their posts, these Japanese soldiers, uh, in order to seek medical help. Well, as the Allied prisoners lined up to watch, a Japanese captain runs in front of the truck and yells, Don't let that truck in here! Furious that the soldiers had abandoned their positions, he looks over them with disgust takes out his pistol and commands, you must leave now. Do not bring these dogs here, he said. Move the truck. Of course, the driver tries to start the engine, but it doesn't work. And the captain orders two of his soldiers to check the engine. Meanwhile, one of the Allied prisoners named Ernest Gordon began to walk toward the truck. The Japanese captain stops and saying, no good, no good. Gordon just kept walking toward the truck, and from the group of prisoners from behind him, a Scottish officer commands Gordon, Captain Gordon, I forbid you to give comfort and aid to the enemy. Gordon replies, Major, these are wounded, dying human beings. They are no harm to us. Ernie, get back to your own men, the officer commanded. Gordon shakes his head no and continues walking toward the truck. The Japanese captain is amazed. Gordon says, could, you, could someone just give me some water? And no one moves. Could someone please give me some water? He yells again. One of the prisoners fetches a bucket of water. Gordon stands in front of the injured soldiers on the truck, injured Japanese soldiers, and begins to tend to their wounds. Following his example, several more of the Allied prisoners step forward and walk to the truck. By now, the Japanese captain is shocked that his prisoners are tending to the wounded of the these wounded Japanese soldiers, and he walks away stunned. In the event from the movie above, we see that the prisoners were helping people who were their tormentors and persecutors. Would you feel obliged to help them or even have mercy on them? In Matthew 5, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In the book of Proverbs, we read, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Paul wrote in Romans, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why did Christ give such an impossible task of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us? And again, Paul says, They overcome evil with good. In our history, all we ever see is humanity overcoming evil with more evil, with stronger evil. This country invades that country, and then another country invades another country, and on and on it goes. Or we see people hurting and other people to stop them from hurting other people, who then hurt other people, who hurting other people. Then Jesus shows up and he says, how about we overcome evil with the love of God and replace evil entirely? 
We, never, we will never stop evil with the same evil I was inflicted with. But you might say, my evil is good compared to the evil. And so if I do my evil, it'll overcome their bad evil because my evil is good. Yet we see this every day. We use hate and violence to stop hate and violence. What we create in our history is a cycle of chaos, violence, and hate to overcome violence, chaos, and hate. In 1994, the world watched in horror as a small African country of Rwanda, the Hutsi tribe, rose up and killed up to 800,000 of the Tutsi tribe. Why did this happen? In his book, Desmond Tutu wrote this about the Rwanda. He says, the history of Rwanda was typical of top dog and underdog. The top dog wanted to cling to its privileged position, and the underdog strove to topple the top dog. Then when, then when that happened, the new top dog engaged in an orgy of retribution to pay back the new underdog for all the pain and suffering it had inflicted when it was top dog. The new underdog fought like an enraged bull to topple the new top dog, storing in its memory all the pain and suffering it was enduring, forgetting that the new top dog was, in its view, only retaliating for all that it remembered it had suffered when the underdog had been its master. So we just overcome and overcome and just keep going. Really, reality, what Archbishop Tutu was saying, was simply doing, was he was retelling the history of humanity. No different. After every age, after every century, after every generation, we're doing the same thing over and over. Why don't we change the rules? Instead of attacking each other in the same language and action, we instead seek reconciliation. We instead seek healing and God's grace. We seek to change our culture, our city, and world with the love that God has given us. Our hu- not human love. <laughs> our human love doesn't work. We bring Christ, let us bring Christ into every situation that we endure. Let us bring Christ into all that we say and do. We bring, Christ, bring His love, His grace, His forgiveness. Will it change right away? Probably not. But will it work at all? Yes, with three exclamation points. Yes. <laughs> this is why we're told to stay alert, be sober, to endure and keep watch, because as we seek to complete the mission of Christ, we will consistently be tempted to give up and stop loving. It will hurt to love. It will hurt to serve. It will hurt to give. We will see, however, God's turning hearts toward Him. We will see people set free, healed, blessed, and strengthened. Let us bring Christ into all our situations. So I challenge us today, complete Christ's mission. Complete his mission by bringing Christ into all you do, in all your relationships, in all your activities, in all your thoughts and dreams. In 1 John, we're told that Christ came to destroy the devil's work. We're told in Hebrews that Christ came to render powerless the devil who had the power of death. We're told in Acts that Christ put an end to the agony of death. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said he's the way to the Father. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He is the Word of God who came and dwelt among us. In 1 Corinthians, we're told Christ is the wisdom of God, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Why would we not want to bring him into all of our situations in every aspect of our lives? In the Gospel of Matthew, we have this beautiful picture of Christ seeing people. Jesus came to this earth and he walked among people. He walked among the lost, the forgotten, and the commoners. He didn't visit much. You read through the gospel. He didn't visit much with the elites of the world. He saw people, though. He noticed them. Matthew 9, we read, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. 
How do we complete Christ's mission? We see people as Christ saw people. So number one, acknowledge Christ. Let's take a look at verse chapter 25. Let's look at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the sheep separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on their left. Too bad Wendy Stuckey's not here. You can tell about the goats and the sheep and she'd always look at me with disappointment because she loves goats, you know. <laughs> Nothing wrong with goats. Well, Matthew 25, the Lord Jesus tells basically three parables, okay? Uh, The wise and the foolish virgins, the talents, and finally this one here, the sheep and the goats. The first parable is about preparing for the long haul that Christ is coming again and will not be immediate, but we are to be ready and to ready ourselves for the long way. The second parable is about a man going on a long journey and he gives his slaves talents or money, and they are to increase the value of those talents given. One man gets five, one man gets two, and the last one gets one. And the first two, of course, increase their talents. You know, the five gets ten, the two gets four, but the one just hit it. He hit it in the ground. When the master returns, he says, here, you can have your talent back. And when I look at that, that second parable about the talents, the attitude of that last slave is, I don't care about you. You don't matter to me. Whatever you give me, I'm going to put it aside and do my own thing. I'm going to live my own life, and then you can take back what you gave me. Out of sight, out of mind, right? God's not my priority. I don't care what what you give me. I'll just do whatever I want. The final parable, similar to all three, first two parables, there is a return. The bridegroom returns. The master returns. Christ returns. The bridegroom returns to get his bride. The wise virgins are there waiting with the bride to accompany the bride to her new home and celebrate the wedding feast. The foolish virgins are not, able, are not there. Therefore, they're locked out, not allowed to be entered. They were not prepared. They were not alert. They were not watching as Christ had said. If you look at chapter 24, uh, verse 50, it says, The master of that slave will come on that day when he does not expect him, an hour which he does not know. Earlier in Matthew 24, 42, Jesus said, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. When Christ does return, what will he find? This is why we are to live the second coming lifestyle, readying ourselves for the coming of Christ, expecting his coming, longing for his coming, desiring for his coming. And then we live a lifestyle saying, Lord Jesus, come back. I expect you. I wait for you. I desire you. We want him to return. We desire his return. We live in expectation. Come, Lord Jesus, is our prayer. Amen. In the second parable, the man returns and he wants an account of what the slaves did with the money he had given. Two were ready. One did not care. This last slave did not love the master. Instead, he did not care what the master gave him, and he was locked out. The last parable, Jesus identifies with, um, uh, just like in the first parable, Jesus identified with the bridegroom and the master in the first two parables. But here he is, it's a different picture. In verse 31, again, it says this, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, he then will sit on his glorious throne. And so you see this beautiful picture of Christ coming in, in great power and beauty. And Jesus returns, and what will he find? It's interesting, Jesus asks this question in Luke. He says, How, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What will he find? Will he find faith on earth? The church ready to receive him? Hearts ready to expecting him? 
Or will he find a neglectful people who have forgotten him, taken from Christ, but care, but do not care for what he's given them? I want to be ready for my Lord. I want to be ready for him coming. I want to live in a state of readiness for my Lord. So let us complete the mission of Christ. Number one, uh, faith is a lifestyle. When Christ returns, this is what we read. He will sit on the glorious throne. He will be seen for who he is. In Philippians, we're told that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. When he sits on his glorious throne, as nations of the world stand before him, he will separate them as shepherds separate sheep from the goats. Typically, in Jesus' day, and long before Jesus' day, the sheep and the goats grazed together, but were separated when it was time for, to shear the sheep. So you separate the sheep and the goats. The separation is for those who will live in the presence of God and those who are locked out. One on the right, one on the left. In Psalm 101 we read, He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. In Psalm 15 we read, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Who who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart? He does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his, friends, against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He does these things, will never, he who does these things will never be shaken. When you look at these words, you realize that to live with God, it's going to require great faith. I need to have faith to live with God. Can I on my own, with my own character, my own goodness, my own morality, ever have a chance at living with God? Absolutely not. (laughs) I'll never make it. I could live a thousand lifetimes. I'll never make it. This is why Christ died on the cross. This is why he went to the cross. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, if I were to rely on myself and my strength and my lifestyle to live up for what God expects, I would not live up to it. I cannot do what he wants. I'm like Paul in Romans 7 where he says, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do want. And because of that inability to do good, Paul shouts, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? The, the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, God. And then, of course, right in verse one of cha- verse eight, chapter eight, verse one of Romans it says, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." In in Second Corinthians, Paul wrote, "For we walk by faith, not by sight. Only in Christ am I set free from the body of death. When I place my faith in Christ, Christ will then live His life in me, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me." Christ in you, the hope of glory. I no longer look at me and what I'm capable of, but instead I look to God and know that he is able to do and accomplish in me and through me as I pour my faith on him. Now I live because of having faith in God. I live the life that he has given me because it's Christ living his life in me. I live the life he's shown me. I live by faith. I live by faith knowing that he is God. He is sovereign. He is faithful. He is good. He's true, holy, and loving. I trust him, not me. (laughs) I trust him. 
I trust him, not my thoughts, not my abilities, not my strength, not my love. I trust him for all that I need. When you put your on Christ, you live by faith, you live a lifestyle of godliness. The Lord Jesus Christ separates those who are his and those who are not his. Those who are his are readily identified by their love for him, their lifestyle. He can see himself in us. So he says, come to this side, for I see myself in you. I see my life in you. I see my love in you. I see my joy and grace in you. I see my completed work in you. So let's complete the mission of Christ. Number two, look past the labels. Let's look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed in my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and you give, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Why do normal people sometimes do horrific, horrible things to other people? In his book, Less Than Human, Professor David Livingston Smith explains that even ordinary people can demean, enslave, and kill other human beings And based on Smith's research, it all starts with one important ingredient, the dehumanization of other people. Smith says, thinking about your enemies in subhuman categories is a way of creating mental distance, of excluding them from the human family. It makes murder not just permissive, but obligatory. We should kill vermin or predators, should we not? He goes on to explain that the early American settlers in Arizona characterized Native Americans as savage beasts. The Nazis depicted Jews as rats. The Japanese invaders of China called their victims chankoro, which means something subhuman like a bug or an animal. What do you do with a bug? You step on it. Prior to 1994, Rwandan genocide, the Hutsis who killed the Tutsis routinely referred to them as cockroaches. Americans fought barbarian Huns in World War I and godless gooks in Vietnam. When we slap a label on another person or people group, it's easier to justify they're killing them. And we're seeing these dehumanization labels happening every day in our political speech. Constantly. You're a Nazi. You're a racist. You're a white supremacist. You're evil. You're vermin. And what do you do with vermin? The labels Nazi, racist, white supremacist are thrown around and given out like candy at the Labor Day parade, right? (laughs) Throw them out. The enemy wants us to be at each other's throats. He wants us in war. He wants us in civil war. He wants us in conflict filled with hate and violence. He wants us divided with a quick trigger finger. It's like everyone is looking for a fight and a label. I can't talk to you because you believe such and such. I can't even be in the same room as you. Well, let's do something different. Let's change the rules. I I challenge you, take like 10 people that you disagree with in every category, and love them, serve them, feed them. 
pray for them. You know, when Christ walked this earth, he saw people. He looked at every heart, and he saw sin in every heart. The only label that we really walk around with is sinner (laughs) until Christ saves us. And he saw every heart. He saw their sin. He saw them, and and it smelled to him. It stunk to him. And he loved them, and he served them. He saw hate in people's heart, hate toward God, his Father, and he loved them. He walked among them. He looked past what they believed. He looked past their social and economic conditions. He looked past their situation and circumstances. He simply saw human beings, and he touched them, cared for them. He healed them. And what stood out to Jesus mostly is he saw human beings. Number one, bring Christ into all situations. As Jesus sits on his glorious throne, he said to those on his right, come you who are blessed in my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, God created the kingdom of God for people. Notice that. Let's look at that again in verse 34. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. He prepared the kingdom of God for people. He wants you there. He desires you there. It's in the original plan. If you looked at the architectural plans of the kingdom of God, they're for people. <laughs> it's interesting if you look at verse 46 when he talks about hell. Look at verse 46. These, uh, not 46. Uh, verse 41, excuse me. <clears throat> Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which is be prepared for the devil and his angels. When he created hell, it wasn't for people. It was not in the design. But those who do not have faith in God, those who reject God, that's where you'll go. If you walk away from God, you don't put your faith in Christ, then that's where you'll go. Hell is real, my friends. Let's do all we can to keep people from going there. The Lord Jesus said, you saw me in all situations. He says those on his right. You saw me when you saw a person hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, sick, or in prison. You saw me when you got up and you saw me in the dying, the hurting, the lost. You saw me and you helped me. When you got up in the morning, when you got dressed, when you had breakfast, when you left your house or you drove your car, when you went to work or sat in your office, when you wrote that report, fixed that pipe, built that house, cared for customers, You brought me into that situation, even the mundane. You know, when you're out and about, maybe at Walmart, Smith's, or Cuisine's, or a restaurant, see people, notice them, recognize they're all sinners in need of Jesus. When Jesus said, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When you he was saying, live in the freedom of loving others. Be free to love. You're free to love. What I hear when Jesus is saying this is that, You're doing what I did. You are living as I lived. He lived a life of compassion. Live a life of compassion and a heart that sees the people, not the worldly label that everyone slaps on each other. As we look around those around us, we ask, how can I bring Christ into every situation that I'm in? Those that Jesus said, you fed me, clothed me, and visited me, they're rather incredulous. He said, we never saw you hungry, thirsty, or naked, or or in prison, or lonely, or a stranger. And then verse 40, he says, The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, 
you did it to me. And I really want you to catch that statement of what Jesus is saying. Notice he says, you did it for me. You didn't do it to make yourself look better. You didn't do it to try to make me like you. You didn't do it for some sort of reward or something. You did it just for me. You did it for me. And what Jesus is revealing is a heart of love. You did this because you love me. You love me and my love is flowing through me. You did it for me. You see, this is the holy life when you love. Holiness is not a title, but a life. When God calls you holy, you live a life of love unto God and unto others. And you say, I'm going to do it for Jesus. I want to do it for Christ. Because a lot of times I'll do some things and I'm like, yeah, I'm get some good there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at me. <laughs> oh, pride can be so insidious. It pops right up in my head. <laughs> look at me. It's like, I just want to do it for the love of God. Number two, three, see God as God sees. Let's look at verse 41. He then will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which is be prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? You did not take care of you and did not take care of you. Then he will answer, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In the church history, there's an interesting story about a man named Martin of Tours. Martin was born around A.D. 335, so roughly 1,700 years ago. He, he was born in a town called, or an area called Panania, which is now Hungary. His father was a pagan soldier, and during his early years, Martin lived in various parts of the Roman Empire. He was very young when he decided to give his life to Christ and become a Christian against his parents' wishes and had his name included in the list of catechumens, or how do you say that? Catechism, I guess. But that's a candidate for baptism, basically. His father, in order to tear him apart from his Christian contacts, enrolled him in the army. Julian the Apostate, that's what he would later be called. He was the emperor at the time. And Martin served under him for several years. While serving as a soldier, uh, uh, Martin has this amazing experience that has been forever associated with Martin. Martin and his friends were entering the city of Amiens, which is in France, when an almost naked and shivering beggar asked him for alms. Martin had no money, so he took off his cape, cut it in two, and gave half to the beggar. According to the story, later in his dreams, Martin saw Jesus coming to him wrapped in half of a soldier's cape and saying, Inasmuch as you did it to one of these least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This episode became so well known that ever since Martin is usually represented in the act of sharing his cape with the beggar. This is also the origin of the word chapel. For centuries later in the small church, there was a piece of cloth reputed to be a portion of Martin's cape. From that piece of cape, Capella, that little church came to be called a chapel, and those who served in it, chaplains. Kind, a kind act created a new name, a new vision. 
Number one, walk toward, not away. As Jesus looked to his left, he says to them the opposite of what he said to those on the right. You walked past me, he said, when you saw me hungry. You walked past me when you saw me thirsty, naked, a stranger in prison. Why? Because you saw a label. You saw my economic status. You saw the dirt. You smelled my stench. You saw me as a problem, a nuisance, a bother. Or you said, I'm too good for them. But Lord, when did we see you this way? We never saw you. For if we saw you, we would have done something. And what this tells me is that they did not know the heart of God. For if they had, they would have followed after the heart of God. In in verse 45, it says, Then he will answer them, I truly say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus was not on the mind of these folks. They had taken their talent and they hid it. God wasn't important to them. They did not bring Christ into their all situations. They left him buried like the slave that buried the talent. Christ was not part of their lives. And when you read verse 45, you see the heart of man. He did not care for what I cared about. You do not see what God sees. Instead, they only saw what they wanted to see, and they did what, what, what they did for themselves. They did, lived like any other human being, basically, without Christ. Those on the left neglect the heart of God and the will of God. I'm reminded of Colossians where Paul wrote, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Everything you do, God, I want to worship you. Boy, that'll cut down on your sinning, right? (laughs) If I do everything unto God, well, I better not do that. (laughs) I just love. In all you do, bring Christ into all your life situations. By bringing Christ into all areas of your life, you will act with wisdom. You will act in compassion. You'll be free to love. You'll change the culture. You'll bring people to Christ. You'll see others healed. You'll see shame replaced with joy. You'll see hate removed with love. You'll see doubt turn into belief. You'll see the power of God. You'll see you will complete the mission of Christ. You know, when you read these parables, it's easy to get afraid and you, you, you get like, oh, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I'll never do this, and that's true. On your own, you'll never will. And the point that Jesus is trying to point out here is saying, rely on me. Turn to me. Love me. Just love me. And as you love me, it will come out. Your lifestyle will see it. People will see it. As you love God, people will say, wow, that person loves God. You'll offend people because you love God. You'll expose sin because you love God. But you'll always say to people, I'll show you a better way. I'll show you a more excellent way. I'll show you the way to grace and God and his goodness and his righteousness. And I'll show you a way where we can overcome evil with good. When you love God, you receive a reward, eternal life, and a home in heaven. You get to stand with him. Complete Christ's mission. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your words. Thank you for your victory. Thank you for your salvation. Lord, we just desire to love you more. And that we, whatever we do, that whatever we do, we'll do it unto Christ. We'll do it unto you. Giving thanks 
to Christ, to God the Father.